this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, this is a good example of like cross-pollinating, you know, coming to talk to IR docs and then we want to get her to our GYN meeting so she can talk about what she does. But engaging with the GYNs, I think talking about this story of how building a practice like this, a program like this can actually help an individual GYN surgeon build their own practices. It'll actually help increase their volume. My, my surgical volume has increased because of this program. It hasn't, it hasn't suffered. It's the opposite. It's been a source of referrals for my practice. Occasionally these UFEs don't solve the problem. So we do their hysts later, or sometimes like Dr. Rosen said, they're not great candidates for UFE, or sometimes they hear about it and go, you know what? I think I want to hiss, but you gave me options. I want you to do it. And so it's been actually a huge part of building my own surgical practice by offering them other options. It's a win, win, win. There's, there are no losers in this program from my perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I actually started taking Athletic Greens because you introduced me to them, Aaron. I'd love to know kind of what you've thought about it so far. Yeah, so I started taking it after my, my trainer told me about it. He uses it for recovery and he says he sleeps better. And he's got one of these. He actually gave me one. It's called a Whoop. It's kind of like a smart watch. Have you seen one of those before? No. What, what's that? It measures your sleep at night. It's pretty accurate. It's crazy accurate, actually. Oh. I guess this is a plug for Whoop as well. But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he was showing me like his charts of like how he sleeps better at night with uh, taking Athletic Greens. And so I thought that was super interesting. And then Kieran and I met the Athletic Greens people at Podcast Movement and I got some free samples and that's sort of where it started. You introduced it to me at a point in my life where I was on a no-chew diet. And so one of the things that I was struggling with was how to get enough nutrients in my diet. And Athletic Greens was a great solution for that. You take it once a day, you take it in the morning, you basically chug this, what, eight to 10 ounce bottle of it um, that you mix every morning. And when you're doing that, you absorb 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods source superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to start your day right. And I did notice a difference when I started taking it. I felt like I had more energy. I felt like I was a little bit more focused. I make the athletic greens, which takes about 10 seconds. I make coffee and then I chug the athletic greens on the way to work. When I wake up in the morning and I drink a lot of fluids, I just feel better throughout the day, right? Yeah. It's just, it's another vehicle to get a lot of water in your system. I agree. I think the morning is the best time to drink it and you feel like you're drinking a smoothie almost. And it's very lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it abides by all those rules. Uh, so that, that's the other nice thing. I'm not any of those things. I like to eat anything. <laughs> you like all, you like to eat all the things? I, I'd like to eat all the things. <laughs> so to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash backtable VI. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash backtable VI to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. A Navy Fishta is a critical lifeline for end-stage renal disease patients on dialysis. See six-month outcomes from separate AV access maintenance trials evaluating PTA balloons, stents, and drug-coated balloons 
at medtronicom slash avdata. Now, back to the show. This is Ali Behetti as your guest host this week, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And I'm very excited to introduce my special guests, Dr. Merve Ozen, a IR at University of Kentucky, and Dr. Mark Hoffman, a minimally invasive gynecological surgeon at the University of Kentucky. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Could we have a little bit of background about what led each of you to where you are now? Yeah, so OBGYN is a four-year residency, and during that time, most of us don't get a ton of surgical experience. And so the Minimally Invasive Surgery Fellowship is relatively new. There were about 20 or so when I was applying. Now there's 40 across the country. And so it's becoming a much more competitive and popular specialty for dealing with complex benign gynecologic pathology. Is it a one-year fellowship out of GYN? It is a two-year fellowship. It is not a boarded special subspecialty per se, but it is. You know, there's now a focused practice designation. So there's more and more recognition. When I was coming out, I literally had to call my chair here and say, hey, um, so here's what I do. Do you need this? And now there are 40 plus graduates every year. All the top places have minimally invasive GYN surgery divisions. It has become the standard across the country. And so it's one of those things to be a part of that evolution has been kind of fun. I've been at Kentucky now for a decade, um, starting out, um, just trying to find a niche, trying to build a practice. You know, one of the things that I did was, was building a fibroid program and being lucky to work with our uh, interventional radiology partners started with just a conversation. I'd love to get into that um, in a little bit. Dr. Ozen, could you give me a little bit of your background too? I am originally from Turkey. I did my medical school and residency back in Turkey, and I was very passionate about interventional radiology. And I wanted to pursue interventional radiology in the States. And uh, I moved here for my interventional radiology fellowship. I completed two years of IR fellowship at the Rush University of Chicago. And then one thing led to another, and I'm here in Kentucky. And I'm doing mostly uh, interventional oncology cases and women's health. Oh, great. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, there's a Turkish connection there at, uh, at Rush, right? You have Dr. Dr. Turba, Dr. Arslan. Dr. Arslan. Yeah, yes, yes. yeah. Those, are, those guys used to be at UVA, I think. So great connection. So I think, Dr. Hoffman, you were getting into this a little bit earlier, but could you explain to me how the combined clinic got started? Whose brainchild was it? It was really just born out of a discussion starting with one of the one of the IR docs here and me just reaching out saying, hey, do you guys do fibroid embolization? They were like, uh, we'd like to, but none of the gynecologists refer. And so that's been a pretty common theme that I've heard in talking to other IR docs around the country, other surgeons is like, you know, the, the common thing I heard was, oh, you're, you're giving away hysterectomies as if that uterus belonged to me somehow. It's a very, you know, physician-centered, misogynistic, paternalistic, strange way to look at what we do, but trying to build patient-centered programs, obviously you want to understand what resources are available and, and, and IR and UFE is an important resource in managing fibroids. And so they were excited, like, uh, yeah, we'd love to do that. And so building the program really just came down to putting a piece of paper on a table and trying to literally draw out like how we would get to see patients, how they would get to see me, how they would get their imaging studies done and how all that would get done. And really it was, I think, 
mutual interests. So number one, both sides wanted to be involved. We had, we had excited partners on both sides. And we had a nurse who was really excited to build a program with us. And as I don't know where you guys, how it is where you are, but I know that where I am, nurses run everything and us doctors just show up and do what we're told and things run well. And, and so, you know, we had a nurse who was, could do it all and said, well, I will staff the clinic and the IR doc said, well, I'll come over to your clinic. And we had some extra rooms. We could let them because th- th- at the time they didn't have any outpatient clinic space. So they came to our clinic and our nurse helped manage and coordinate the MRIs and, uh, and getting them in to see us in clinic. And it was like, a you know, it started off just like a half day. I think it started off maybe a half day a month, but now we're basically every week that patients can get their MRI done in the morning, body MR can read it by noon. They can come see me in the afternoon. And Dr. Rosen now, who's the lead from IR, can see them after they see me. We can do their endometrial biopsy and their PAP, their exam evaluation, review MRI. And then all three of us, Dr. Rosen and me and the patient can all sit down and discuss what patient's best options are. And it's super easy. It's one of those things that like, you know, we build it for the patients. You'd think it would be a big sacrifice for docs, but it's been really, really easy, I think, for all of us. I see. Okay. You talked about the development of the program, and it sounds like you had buy-in from both the IR side and the GYN side. But did you face any pushback from the other GYNs in your department for building a program that, you know, in layman's terms, might take away some of their cases? Did you get a lot of support from your chair? So yes and yes. I mean, not specifically for this program. I think for MIGS, minimally invasive GYN surgery, there's been a lot of pushback in general, from the general OBGYNs who feel like we're quote unquote stealing cases. And so that's a whole other podcast for another day. But in terms of support, I have a very, very supportive chair who doesn't do what I do. She does high risk obstetrics and really it's sort of the other end of our department. And so we have a, a good relationship. She trusts me. And the last decade or so, my, my method of program building is fail quietly, succeed loudly, and just kind of start programs if they don't work. Okay. Nobody, nobody has to know about it. And if they're successful, make sure everybody knows about it and just try things, you know, see if it works. Don't really ask for a whole lot, build lean, found these programs on relationships, on people. And and it's hard because sometimes you don't have that partner. Sometimes you don't have that other excited person on the other end. And I talked to Dr. Rosen today about that, actually, about another program I was trying to build. And one of the other people outside of our department really didn't like it. And if that, if that's the case, it's just not going to get done. And so you really have to find those partners. And for that, I've been extremely lucky here at UK. I've, you know, Dr. Ricey, who's the division director for intermittent radiology, who started the program with me and now Dr. Rosen, we've just had such good fortune in having such excited, talented, and, 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 and delightful partners. I mean, just great people to work with. It's just a wonderful, wonderful program because of the people. And, the, and Laura, the nurse who runs our program now is just a star. I mean, we are extremely lucky. Yeah. Laura sounds like she was like, kind of like the champion, like exactly. you had a, you had a nursing champion and I mean, you can, you and another physician can do as much as you want, but if you don't have buy-in from the staff members, you know, in the team, then you got nothing, right? Right whole lot of nothing. A whole lot of nothing. There we go. <laughs> Dr. Ozen, I'd like to know from your perspective how the combined clinic runs. So give me what the a day in clinic would be like for you. 
a day in, in a clinic starts with reviewing all the images of the patients. And if the patient is coming from Dr. Hoffman, I take little notes to discuss with Dr. Hoffman or like ask questions to Laura. So I get prepared for my patients, then make sure that those are answered. And some of the patients require to be discussed by both of us. Some of the patients need additional imaging and some of the patients just directly come to me and I would like Dr. Hoffman to see it. So it's a very dynamic clinic. So it requires a lot of attention. And thanks to Laura, our nurse, she's always on top of it. So we have a good flow. And one by one, we see every patient. If there are any kind of issues or any, any other questions that needs to be discussed, we just gather all together and just me, Dr. Hauptman and the patient, we just discuss everything openly and the patients are very appreciated. How many patients do you usually see in a day of clinic nowadays? It depends. Sometimes it's four or five and sometimes it's more than that. And most of the time it takes a lot of time because you need to, for any kind of pelvic pain patient, you need to assess and make sure you exclude most of the other pelvic disease, pelvic pain conditions. And these patients suffered a lot before finding us. So they have a lot of questions. So it takes for me for 40 to 45 minutes approximately to assess one patient. And before that, I have to review their MRIs. And I think it's just, it takes a lot of work, not just from me, for from all of us. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So how do you pick which patients are good candidates for this clinic versus individual visits with IR or individual visits with GYN? I think most, like, if there are any kind of fibroid or pelvic pain-related symptoms, they come to the fibroid clinic because they need to, the patients need to be discussed for both of us, even though they've seen by other gynecologists from different places, they may not offer the things that Dr. Hoffman offers, which we recently encountered an interaction with a patient. I was reviewing the imaging and I thought patient may have myomectomy before the EFE. And I asked Dr. Hoffman and showed the images and then patient saw Dr. Hoffman and we discussed the myomectomy option all together. And eventually uh, myomectomy happened. So it's better to see all pelvic pain patients in one clinic. It's not just a fibroid clinic. And these problems are all very close to each other. And we also have the opportunity to discuss some of the patients with the urogynecology. And uh, sometimes I receive consults from their department and uh, it's really nice to have them around as well. And then how about you, Dr. Hoffman? Do you have patients who you see individually as a GYN who might end up getting, you know, minimally invasive gyne surgery that maybe wouldn't be great ca candidates for this clinic? Yeah, I mean, my practice right now is primarily fibroids, endometriosis, chronic pelvic pain. A lot of patients that uh, have been seen by their primary OBGYN and have been told, oftentimes it's that hysterectomy is the only option. And again, when you have a fee-for-service model for healthcare in general, like we talked about earlier, how hard are you going to counsel somebody about the value of a procedure if you may not personally benefit from it? And I don't think doctors are bad people or those decisions, but there is a conflict of interest. There is a financial conflict of interest for all of us in this, in this job. And I think that a lot of times patients are told this is the only option. And, and that goes for just gynecology as well. Like, oh, well, 
open abdominal hysterectomies your only option. And I've been doing this 10 years now. My rate of laparoscopic hysterectomy is 99%. And that's, that's like wow. talking about like hysterectomies that are 20, 30 week size. The biggest hysterectomy we did laparoscopically was 13 pounds. These are patients that can go home the same day or, you know, most an overnight stay that otherwise would be getting a giant midline, vertical midline incision. Do you know what the rate of open hysterectomy is in in community practice? I mean, I'm sure it's much higher, but any ideas? Anywhere from, you know, it can be as high as 30 to 40% in certain practices. So institution to institution, but I think one of the challenges is if you have people, so the average OBGYN in the first four years out after training does on average two to four hysterectomies per year. So two to four hysterectomies per year. And of those... How many are you doing that are complex or challenging? If you get into any trouble, the default is to open. You know, I think most of us who are doing just minimally invasive GYN surgery are doing 60 to 100 or more hysterectomies per year, or you just do a lot, right? And so that's the culture shift within OBGYN in general. So just within my clinic alone, not even talking about UFEs, I mean, laparoscopic myomectomy or laparoscopic hysterectomy, those things are not being offered enough to our patients. And so I've become kind of like the fibroid guy. Any fibroid issues, you come see me. And because... I'm not worried about my practice more than I'm worried about our patients. You know, we talk about UFEs for all of them. We get the MRI, Dr. Rosen and I sit down and we look at MRIs, decide, you know, tell patients what we think is appropriate. And like she said, maybe there's a subucosal fibroid that I ought to take out hysteroscopically. And, and then if they're not doing well after that, they can come back and get their UFE. And, and, and we have just as many patients who hear their options and go, you know what, I want a hysterectomy, but I want you to do it. And so the alternatives to hysterectomy clinic can be the busiest clinic for hysterectomies because (laughs) patients feel like they're getting choices and they were told hysterectomy is their only option. And now they go, okay, that's too many choices. Simplify it for me. So focusing on patient-centered approaches has been a really, I think, fresh experience for most of our patients because they're just used to being told what to do. And I think when you present them with options, it's not what they're used to hearing. So Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you have any buy-in from outside GYNs that send people to your clinic? Like maybe like old guys in the community? Yeah, it's it's actually become much more common now because, and not just for UFEs, but for these complex cases that they're realizing they just don't want to do anymore. But yeah, so knowing that we're the, we're, we're the game in town and, and for most of the state of Kentucky, really, we, we get patients from outside of the state that come into our program too, because they've heard about us. And so we've been getting more and more referrals. And I did some work when I first got here just because I wasn't getting referrals, hustling and having to work in like Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky and realizing what a challenge it was for our patients to get up here. And so it was really with those patients in mind that we designed, that I, that we designed this clinic. You know, if you're going to take a day off work and your partner's going to take a day off work and you're going to drive your car two hours to get up here. And so for me to say, oh, come back in a few days for an MRI and then come back in a few days to a different clinic to see an IR doc and then come back in a few days to they're just going to stay home and say, it's not worth it. They can't, they can't do it. And so if we can design it for the folks that have the most difficulty getting up to see us, if we can build a clinic for them, well, the ones that live in town, it's, they'll be even happier. It's fine. But if you can build a clinic, a patient center clinic that thinking about actually getting them the care they need, not just like knowing what the right answer is, but like making sure they have access to care. And so building our program with those patients in mind. They can come in in the morning, get their MRI. If we know about them ahead of time, they can come in in the morning, get their MRI, have it read by the afternoon, see me in clinic, see Dr. Rosen in clinic, and they leave with the plan in one day. And it's been nice. That's amazing. Yeah. 
it takes away a lot of the challenges of provider to provider communication because, I mean, you're operating all day, we're in cases all day. Sometimes it's hard to get in touch with even referrers that I really respect and I want to talk to them about a case. It could take like up to a week to get in touch with those people. Well, that's that's really fantastic to have patient-centered care as a top priority. So what kind of advice would you have for any IRs in the community or at other academic practices who may want to engage their GYNs in a multidisciplinary clinic like this? Engage with them like we're talking about. I mean, again, it's all about relationships. And, you know, it's definitely a highlight of my week when Dr. Rosen comes over and we get to catch up and just chat and share ideas and trying to help each other out, right? And, you know, this is a good example of like cross-pollinating, you know, coming to talk to IR docs and then we want to get her to our GYN meetings so she can talk about what she does. But engaging with the GYNs, I think talking about this story of how building a practice like this, a program like this can actually help an individual GYN surgeon build their own practices. It'll actually help increase their volume. My, my surgical volume has increased because of this program. It hasn't, it hasn't suffered. It's the opposite. It's been a source of referrals for my practice. Occasionally these UFEs don't solve the problem. So we do their hysts later, or sometimes like Dr. Rosen said, they're not great candidates for UFE, or sometimes they hear about it and go, you know what? I think I want to hist, but you gave me options. I want you to do it. And so it's been actually a huge part of building my own surgical practice by offering them other options. And so I think it's the best way to convince people to do it is to let them know the, the reality of our program, which is it, it'll build their own practice. It'll help them personally. So it, it's, it's a win, win, win. There's, there are no losers in this program from my perspective. That's fantastic. What a great outlook. Since most of our audience here is interventional radiologists and other vascular specialists, I'd love to know a little bit more about some of the other surgical options for fibroids that you offer as a minimally invasive surgeon. Could you educate me on that? Yeah. So, yeah, right. Fibroids, I guess we can sort of start with what they are, but, you know, benign tumors of the uterine muscle, 99.8 to 99.9% of the time, fibroids or lesions that look like fibroids are, in fact, fibroids. And they can grow wherever there's muscle. And so if they grow inside the wall, intramural, and they can indent into the cavity, cause irregular bleeding. They can occasionally grow outside towards the serosa, the outside layer of the uterus called subserosal fibroids or submucosal towards the cavity or sometimes even into the cavity. Again, I joked that the, you know, the OBGYN boards used to be a lot easier because the answer was always his hysterectomy. You know, now we've got all these additional options for treatment. So medical management, if you got fibroids and heavy periods, birth control pills may be what you need. Hormonally suppressed, there's a few new pills out there that work to suppress hormonal function in different ways, but hormonal options certainly is one option. In terms of surgical management options, traditionally hysterectomy is for folks who are done having kids. If you're not interested in future fertility, myomectomy versus hysterectomy, similarly morbid procedures you know, in terms of patient outcomes. Periop outcomes are similar, but long-term, if you keep your uterus, even after having your fibroids removed, you could still have some irregular or abnormal bleeding. I don't get to say 100% very often in my job, but if I take out your uterus, 100% of the time, you will have no uterine bleeding afterwards. Um, and so it's a pretty definitive. <laughs> yeah. I, the one time I get to say that. So it's a more definitive option. And so if you're done having kids in general, unless you want to keep your uterus, which every woman is allowed to do, and then we recommend hysterectomy over myomectomy and a less invasive option. You know, vaginal hysterectomy certainly is a, is a less invasive option, but laparoscopic or robotic, it's the same in terms of the patients, but laparoscopic or robotic hysterectomy or, you know, in certain situations, abdominal hysterectomy is, is necessary. In terms of myomectomy, abdominal or laparoscopic myomectomy for lesions that are 
intramural or subserosal, but a lot of our practice is hysteroscopic. Uh, so, you know, those fibroids that grow into the cavity, we can put a camera through the vagina, through the cervix, into the uterine cavity and shave those fibroids down. So no incisions, go home the same day. And, you know, I've had patients referred to me saying, my doctor told me I need a hysterectomy. And while we're there, we'll just take out my ovaries. And I'm, and I'm looking at their ultrasound and going, why would, why would they do that? And so I had the, saw the patient on Monday and by Friday, we're in the OR, did a hysteroscopic myomectomy. She went home that day and was back to work on Monday. That's great. I didn't realize that the downtime for myomectomy was, could be so low. For hysteroscopy, it is because there's no incisions. There's no real recovery outside of just anesthesia. You know, there's a patient's going home on ibuprofen. And so, yeah, hysteroscopy, if the lesions are submucosal, you can shave those down and patients can feel better. Even if you still have some intramural or subserosal fibroids remaining, if there's not symptomatic, and that's the last thing that you can do for patients is nothing. I get patients referred to me all the time. I got my spine MRI and they saw a fibroid or, you know, I got a CT scan because I got, you know, had an appendicitis and they saw a fibroid and I say, are you having problems? And they say, no. I said, okay, nice to meet you. Have a good afternoon. They're, you know, 50% of women in the, in the reproductive age, up to two thirds of women, by the time they go into menopause, have one or more, more fibroids. It'd be good for business if we took them all out, but it wouldn't be good for patients. And so just providing reassurance. I did that a few times today. Just, how are you doing? Fine. Okay. Well, good. Nice to meet you. Have a good afternoon. Call me if you need me. But, you know, nothing is a very, very reasonable thing to offer patients with fibroids who are not symptomatic. Dr. Hoffman, do you have any experience with the RF ablation procedure for fibroids? Not personally. We just had a resident give their grand rounds actually on new technologies. We looked into it. So there's two companies doing it right now. Primarily one is a laparoscopic RF ablation of fibroids. And that's a, so it's a general anesthesia umbilical incision with a camera. There's a typically, I think a suprapubic incision where they put a ultrasound device on the uterus and then probe goes through the skin into the fibroid and kind of cooks it. I think there's a lot of promise in that. It's a newer technology. And like most universities, we're not typically on the cutting edge when it comes to buying new machines. We looked into it, I think at one point it was, you know, the profit margin, those kinds of conversations happen. And they say, uh, not right now. I think it's got great potential. I think the data, short-term data is good. I think the other device, transcervical RF ablation is much more interesting to me personally, because like we talked about with hysteroscopy, you know, there's no incisions. You're you know, you're not having to do laparoscopy. You're not having to enter into the peritoneal cavity. These are patients that could probably, they can go home same day. And, you know, UFE, one of the good things about it is that it's less invasive, but it's ischemic necrosis where you get a little bit more pain, I think, than RF ablation, which is coagulative necrosis. And so there seems to be less pain associated with that. So I haven't personally used either device outside of the lab, outside of, you know, at a, at a meeting you know, ablating a, a rubber ball or something like that. But I do, I do think there's promise. I haven't used them personally, but I have some colleagues who have been involved in some of those studies and have had some pretty good data. And I always talk to patients about that too. I don't do those. Here's other things to think about. Always happy to recommend folks that do things I don't do too. It's not about me. I'd love to shift over to Dr. Ozen for a little bit, just to talk about UFI. Could you, for our trainees, could you help us understand uh, who the ideal candidate would be for a uterine fibroid embolization? Absolutely. Uterine fibroid embolization could be an option to any symptomatic fibroid patient who doesn't want to go through a surgery. 
For patients who have submucosal fibroids, we can add a myomectomy, a stereoscopic myomectomy prior to the EFE to minimize the risk of expulsion. And for very large fibroids and the patients presenting with mainly box symptoms, we may need to warn the patient that the box symptoms may not resolve right away as the bleeding symptoms may resolve within a couple of weeks. So if the patient has a multiple enhancing fibroids, which are causing pain and box symptoms, and patients would like to avoid hysterectomy and would like to explore minimally invasive options, uterine fibroid embolization is a great option. Okay. All right. I'm going to rapid fire some questions about who you would or would not do a UFI on. Okay. I get people coming into my clinic who maybe are not done having kids yet. Do you offer a MUFI? I tell them that there is no real data about patients getting pregnant after UFE, but there are instances that some patients can get pregnant after UFE, but it's still better than not having your whole uterus. And in some patients, it's been found that after UFE, since the uterine lining is more straightened up and the uterus came to a normal size, patients may have pregnancies after that, but it's very rare. So overall, we don't know. But if you want to start from a therapy and if uh, medical therapy is not working, this might be your option. And what about large pedunculated fibroids? Do you do you pause before those? Subserosal fibroids? Correct. I do not. I explain them. There's a risk. There are case reports showing the the fibroids can just fall off into the peritoneum. I describe these risks and I just show the fibroids. This is the fibroid. It it can fall off and it may you may go through surgery for this. And I dis- we discuss the other options. These are the cases we, we usually discuss all together with Dr. Hoffman. And I personally haven't encountered any complications with subserosal fibroid embolization, but it could happen. Great. And you mentioned with submucosals, you know, they could infarct or pass them. Okay, this is a random one, but if somebody has an IUD in place, do you have them take it out before their UFI or do you leave it in place? Yes, we do. Do you take it out? Yes. Dr. Hoffman takes them out before we do the EFE. One of my partners asked me that the other day and I was like, oh, I don't think I've ever encountered that. That's interesting. So how about some adjunctive pain techniques? A lot of new stuff has happened in, you know, past 10 years. Do you do anything special for your UFI patients to help with pain control afterwards? We have the luxury to admit our patients overnight. So our pain team helps us to control their pain. And sometimes patients don't want to stay in the hospital, especially during the pandemic. In those cases, I use a superior hypogastric block, but I do not do it routinely because for some of the patients, it's another procedure. When I explain the procedure, I'm going to insert a long needle in your belly and it's going to help with your pain. They Sometimes they do not prefer that. And since we have the luxury to admit our patients overnight, I just keep it for the patients who would like to leave the hospital earlier. 
I sense a theme in the way that you both approach patients is that you offer them a lot of choice, and I'm sure they appreciate that. That's fantastic. Was there something you wanted to say, Dr. Hoffman? Yeah, I just wanted to take that opportunity with with Dr. Oson's comments to talk about how lucky we are to have an IR group that takes ownership of their patients who've undergone UFE. When I was in training, a lot of times you'd have patients show up for the ER in pain after UFE, and they'd call the gynecology team and we're looking at each other going, but we didn't, we didn't do this. And they go, oh, well, there's, they don't have a service. And you go, yeah, but they have a procedure they did. And that can lead to conflict. That can lead to frustration. And that was something that was set very, very early on when Dr. Rice, he started the program. If a patient came to the ER, they called IR and they would admit the patient to their service and they would manage the pain when it didn't come to gynecology. And that was something that I think led to some, I wouldn't go as far as, as to say conflict, but it certainly did not improve the relationship to have a patient on your service that someone else had done a procedure on. The fact that those patients were getting admitted, taken care of, managed by the IR service, I mean, it made it super easy for us. And it was ownership of the patients from, from their team. And, and it's really been that way from, from the start. And, I, and it's been super easy for us for that reason. And that's a good example of that. Absolutely. And the younger generation of IR is very focused on clinical IR and not just being proceduralist. So I hope that around the country, we'll see more and more of that IR taking ownership of their patients. I have a lot of questions about other kind of patients you see in combined clinic. Like you mentioned, somebody comes in for pelvic pain. What other interventional options do you offer for pelvic pain, Dr. Ozen? The other group of patients that we mostly see in the urine fiber clinic is pelvic congestion syndrome patients. And um, these patients also go through a lot until they find us. And most of the time they've been told that they are okay, this pain, they just imagine this pain. And then incidentally, they've found these like vessels in their belly and that can cause this pain. So when these patients come up to us, we want to make sure that we discuss the medical options, interventional options, and surgical options. And I always like to start from the most minimally invasive and conservative options. So I asked Dr. Hoffman to see the patients because of the uh, potential medical treatment. So we start from the medical treatment and if patients still feel bad, I can offer pelvic congestion syndrome treatments such as ovarian vein embolization. And some of the patients also may have pelvic compression problems like uh, Maytherner syndrome or Nutcracker syndrome. So. We always assess them with an imaging technique before planning for any intervention. And I will leave uh, the surgical options to Dr. Hoffman. Real quick, before we get off of that, do you use the same MRI protocol to evaluate all of these patients? Like, does it cover fibroids and pelvic venous disease? Or is there, do you have to get some additional stuff if you're concerned about pelvic venous disease? For fibroids, we have a protocol pre-MRI and six-month MRI with contrast. And for pelvic patients, I usually get a CT scan because we don't have an MR venogram protocol right now. So it also allows me to exclude other things. And these patients usually have a CT scan. They've been scanned. They've been gone to multiple doctors already. So they usually come up with an imaging anyways. Even I'm learning stuff this podcast. This is great. <laughs> 
See, it's not just for IRs. <laughs> okay, Dr. Hoffman, do you mind telling me a little bit about surgical management for pelvic venous disease or pelvic congestion syndrome? Yeah, this is, you know, it's one of those things that I think is a lot more frequently published in the radiologic literature than in the gynecology literature. The connection between pelvic congestion syndrome or venous disease like you're describing and, it, you know, is it a true cause of pain? It's like from the GYN side, it's not as well, the data is not as strong. I mean, so there, there's some data to suggest that progesterone management for progesterone therapy for pelvic congestion syndrome can be helpful. And then it usually is just hysterectomy. I mean, I think there's other folks doing other things, but nothing that I've seen that's where there's a whole lot of data to support what they're doing. But yeah, I think embolization is a great option for those patients that have tried a bunch of things. And, you know, pelvic pain in general is a complex topic. As I tell our patients, there's a lot of stuff in the pelvis. It's not just your uterus and ovaries and your cervix. You've got muscle, you've got nerves, you've got bladder bound. So we have to take a step back and take a full systems approach to evaluating patients with pelvic pain. And certainly pelvic congestion syndrome can be part of that, you know, that differential. But typically we have to look at it from, from all the systems down there. Yeah. I know these are some of the most complex patients we treat because there's just so much that could be going on there. And they've usually seen so many different specialists before they've seen you and have been through the rigmarole. I think I had a patient that said they had had 19 surgeries before they came to see me. Oh my. <laughs> and I said, thank you for thinking that I'm going to do something that those other surgeons couldn't do. But I think with our study, you know, our N of one uh, with 19 surgeries, one thing we know for you is that surgery is not going to be the thing that makes you feel better because you're back here with pain. So that's when we have to take a step back and make sure we don't just run to the OR again. But man, 19 surgeries at a young person's wow, yeah, pretty amazing. Dr. Ozener, are there any other interventional procedures that you offer for patients that are seen in this combined clinic? We are starting to offer pain management procedures such as uh, nerve blocks and cryoablation. I listened to Dr. Prologo's podcast. I loved it. So thank you, Dr. Prologo. And I think there's a lot to research and offer with cryoablation. I more commonly do this procedure for cancer patients, but I think chronic pelvic pain patients also will benefit a lot from cryoablation. Yeah, that's an excellent emerging technology that has a lot of potential. And absolutely, that's such a fantastic podcast. Um, we'll link it in our show notes so anyone can take a listen if they'd care to. All right. So what's on the next frontier for women's health, IR interventions, and minimally invasive gyne surgery? What are we going to be talking about in five years? Well, I think one of the benefits of having this relationship that we've had, our, our, our two services, has been Actually, in the obstetric side of things, we've had some pretty complex ectopic pregnancies that have come through here, a cervical ectopic pregnancy. And this is, you know, this is me calling around, you know, I get called for these things and I'm going, well, I've never seen one. And then I call my colleagues around the country who've been doing this for a lot longer than me and they go, well, I've never seen one either. So you're looking at case reports from, you know, for the last 30 years. And so we had a, a woman with a cervical pregnancy and we were able to have IR embolize. I think they injected methotrexate into the pregnancy and then injected gel foam behind it and did that bilaterally. And the images are phenomenal. I mean, you can like see the full like 3D of this pregnancy. You know, it was really wild to see. How far along was it? I want to say like around 10 weeks. Oh, yes. And everybody I talked to that had seen one and there weren't that many were like, 
oh yeah, that patient almost bled to death or that was, the, oh yeah, those are terrible. And this lady we took care of, we, they analyzed her. She went home, I think the next day, I saw her back in clinic, like a few weeks later, she was already like back, you know, whatever she was doing, like a couple weeks later, she's like, oh yeah, it's been fine. Like, just like as if nothing had happened. And it was one of those things that, you know, talking to the oncologist, the GYN oncologist about, you know, hysterectomy and, you know, blood bank and all these, you know, massive, massive, massive interventions that completely avoided by, you know, taking a step back and really thinking about what all of our options were. We also had an abdominal pregnancy at Dr. Rosen. I believe you're the one who took care of that patient. Is that right? And that was one where, yeah. you know, the high-risk OB calls me and goes, oh, let's do surgery, surgery, surgery. I'm like, okay, let's just take it. Let's look at our options here and talk to the patient. Here's what we can do. And that was a really interesting case as well. And that was somebody who, these are, you know, these are patients who are trying to get pregnant. And this is not the desired pregnancy that they wanted or the desired outcome they wanted that, you know, pregnancies were desired, certainly. And so they want uterine preservation. They want to be able to try again and thinking about, you know, their long-term outcomes with pregnancy. And so they, you know, embolize the abdominal pregnancy. And it was one of those things that was used in embolization. Did you guys inject? I can't remember what y'all did. Why don't you talk about that, Dr. Rosen? We did bilateral urine embolization with only embolics and patient received intramuscular mesotrexate. And it was at 11 weeks. And I think around a month or so, the beta-HCG levels were down. So um, she was doing great and actually we published it. Wow, very interesting case. But that brings to the point you wouldn't have thought about it if you didn't have a relationship with IR, right? No, these are all the things, you know, we get because of our relationship. If I need something, I can just pick up my phone and call, say, hey, what do you think about this? And, you know, maybe on a formal consult necessarily, but, you know, and we, you know, we have patients that show up with pelvic inflammatory disease and tubal ovarian abscesses. And obviously that, you know, that kind of the bread and butter stuff for a lot of IR docs out there, but it's a lot of what we do. Um, and that's not even talking about the G1 oncology side, which is, which is not what I do personally, but where IR really just does. I mean, there's so many things that IR docs do for our, our GYN patients and our OB patients. And having that relationship certainly expedites care for our patients and it makes things work much more smoothly because like you said, you're not waiting weeks for a response to an email. You're not waiting days for a electronic chart note that may or may not get to whoever you sent. And so just having that relationship, like most things, right? It takes time and, and you know, but having those relationships allows us to do a better job taking care of our patients. And so we're very, very fortunate where we are. Very, very lucky to have the team that we have. And it's all I can do every day to make sure we keep it, you know, and tell everybody how great they are every day so they understand how valuable they are so they stick around. Very happy to have you, Dr. Hoffman. You know, well, thank I'm you. I, so I'm, not going, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> As we wrap up here, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know uh, or anything we failed to cover during this podcast? I would like to talk about some of the patient's experiences and the things that they tell me during these um, interactions. The patients who suffer a lot before coming to us and they tell me that, oh, I'm used to bleeding 15 days a, days a month and passing all these clots, but I'm having these spasms while I'm doing this very important work and during my job, which breaks my heart. So these women are one of us, like doing everyday jobs. And it's very, very difficult to live like that. And also they're scared of surgeries and they go to different doctors. So it's very, very important to offer this as an option. And most of our patients 
find us through internet. So if any of the patients listening to this podcast, maybe they can think about this procedure. And if there are any gynecologists listening to this podcast, that they will consider talking to an interventional radiologist or getting to know one of the interventional radiologists in their hospital. It just starts with one conversation. And over five, six years, we help over 300 patients and seeing them with their happy faces after a couple of weeks after UFE, it's amazing. It's the best thing I've, I can do. And it's the most meaning, meaningful thing. So I'm really very happy to work with Dr. Hoffman. And I was given this opportunity. I'm really thankful that I was given this opportunity by Dr. Dracy. And I thank you for having me today. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. I've learned quite a bit during this podcast. And it's refreshing to see such a great interaction between two different clinicians, all with the same patient goals in mind. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today. Uh, thanks so much for having both of us on to talk about our program about the University of Kentucky. And uh, it's fun to get to learn about other specialties and what they do. So thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.